Lederach's argument would be that <coughs> to initiate a peace process or peace building conflict transformation process you need usually to initiate it in the, what he calls the intermediate level, the civil society it's not that they are the key drivers but they might be the initiators and his point is that they usually if you find the right people on that level, not everyone is suited for this but those who have the trust and relations with top leaders and grassroots levels as well across let's say that if there's an ethnic conflict inside that society, across, on a more horizontal level, have trust on, on the other side, so to speak, then you can begin a transformation process from that level. But it should involve the grassroots level as well. Without the grassroots, it will be hard to move forward. So the local turn, which the United Nations and Liberal Peace and others are talking about, seems to be a little bit sometimes almost a romanticizing of the grassroots levels as something that should come from below <coughs> and trickle up but Ladrack and others speak about it should trickle out from everywhere and involving those who are the core actors to the conflict which again implies that before you do anything make a comprehensive conflict analysis and first we need to know who are really the owners of the company, who are the core actors per se. So this interplay between the various spaces or levels, whatever concept you use, in the conflict area um, is, is of immense importance to understand. So today we will focus more on, or less, on the top leaders. We're more interested in seeing how intermediate and grassroots levels or spaces can um, initiate and start a transformation process. But it will also include the other levels. But you yourself, I always ask that, and I think those who have had me before, they know that, ask from where does peace come? I don't think it's the top leaders. I don't think they are the ones who always initiate. Sometimes you have exceptions, and that's what you usually call brave leaders and so on, but, but we don't have that many of them. Most are very pragmatic, even sometimes opportunistic, and trying to sense how the mood is out there, and then from there on trying to, to push forward. You also know that from the track one negotiations, they're not that keen on elaborating all kind of win-win solutions, rather they are keep, keeping <coughs> and standing on their positions and interests rather than their needs. So let's see then what the other levels can do and what examples we have. Because usually you hear in the critique from those who still believe in the top leader level and peace building model that there are not good examples from, from how peace can be built from below. And I'm not saying it's not difficult, but it's definitely a place where you can do a lot. Of course, if you try to identify these players more uh, accurately when we speak about the intermediate level according to Ladrach, we speak about academics, bureaucrats, religious leaders, national NGO leaders, and so on, and even academics. That's why we have been involved sometimes too. Uh, bureaucrats that could be you know, civil servants that are very close to the top leaders, of course but they usually may also have some good contacts and relations with the grassroots. 
and as you know sometimes <coughs> one person can be running from different positions on the one hand being a servant to a top leader but also be a representative within an NGO and so on uh, but the point is we need to identify who are the peace capacities then I'm on also intermediate level people are still prone to go on uh, with conflicts uh, some of you have seen this so one could divide the different tracks into various potential ways of, of working with peace building we spoke about number one and two last time in the lecture so I will not talk so much about that but you see that there are more tracks from three to nine by the way I will place the last as well as today's lectures PowerPoint on Google so you will have access to it don't worry in case you are desperate to making notes here so there are three to nine meaning six additional or seven additional tracks uh, where maybe there are even more I haven't thought it true but inspired from McDonald Diamond we have seven more <coughs> tracks which we could work with companies some companies actually want to have a change in the conflict dynamics I'm not speaking necessarily about arms industry they want usually to, to have a continuation of the conflict itself but some companies maybe are hesitant to invest in a conflict area but would do it if there would be a peace agreement they might be approached and they might be able to, to contribute. I have some example of how Jordan and Israel, when they had a peace agreement, a joint venture, some industries. We also know that sometimes can be problems on the long run because, like the Jordanian Israeli textile, textile uh, company, have Jordanian low salary payment. Usually, women can create a lot of problems in itself. <coughs> closen the, the distance between Jordanians and Israelis uh, citizen diplomacy is another example which I will also bring up more in future detail later uh, here I just mentioned for instance the mothers in Argentina you have also women in Guatemala and, and women in, in uh, Colombia and so on who have been going out on streets demonstrating and asking, requesting from the regimes that they give information about their loved and dear ones, what has happened to them, and so on. I think the mothers in Argentina, they succeeded in them, forced the regime to, to act, and got a lot of public support by doing these actions, which shows at the time when you had an authoritarian regime, and also in authoritarian regimes, you can have an impact towards change in society. Uh, research and education, there are many ongoing interesting both research and educational corporations in conflict areas, which is one way of bringing the conflict parties directly into some sort of joint action for a joint future. I will give you one example of why we have been involved uh, in Jerusalem. Um, activism, track six is probably that fact which is mostly how do you say visible in the media, particularly news media, because when something <coughs> happens action, that's when the media is there. There 
rarely go into the other tracks that we just discussed. But activism in particular, in particular if there is some uh, confrontation between police forces or something else. Um, and there are many, many examples. I think the most recent example is from the Arab Spring, which I also will, if time allows, will talk a little bit about. And it also leads directly to the concept of resistance when there is some sort of um, regime oppression or war-like situation. What can be done in terms of a public resistance? And actually, it's quite a relaunched, you could say, recent research field within the academia. It's striking how little we have done research on what is the difference and, and in, in terms of impact of social change and peace building uh, when we compare, on the one hand, armed resistance with peaceful means, uh, unarmed resistance. And we'll come into that a little bit. Religious facilitators, there are so many religious quiet facilitators who mediate in various conflicts all over the world. Quaker and Mennonites in particular, but also many others. Um, <coughs> they're doing a one of them, Adam Kerr, I always mention. Also John Paul Ladek, who is a Mennonite himself. And uh, Adam Kerr, he was a Quaker. He worked with many conflicts in Africa in the quiet. Brought the conflict parties together. But then again, he worked more as a facilitator with top leaders or on the intermediate level. Um, funds are always important. We need to find peace funds, also peace building costs, although we are <coughs> in, in giving much less resources to peace building compared to military campaigns, which is a little bit odd in one sense, but that's how the world functions. But we need to identify sometimes who are those who are ready to pay for the peace investment you want to do. Another final track nine has to do with the media's role. I think a lot of research has already convinced most people on that. Media is a very good either actually contributor or even initiator of conflict escalation and also to fuel the conflicts by being very biased, particularly in ethnic conflicts, we know from, for instance, the, the, the breakdown of Yugoslavia and how the media reported about each other's sides. We had an us and them talk. And of course, they just created fears and stereotypes. So the idea is then to reverse this and try to see if we can have some sort of peace media reporting and see if you can report in a different way than and usually the media does by, by explaining the conflict as being zero-sum games where no side can win, so one side can only win and at the expense of the other side, so to speak, the cost of the other side. So public opinion communication media can, might be a very important part in, in the local term or whatever we define it as. All right. Anyone wants another example? While I was talking, came up with a new track I didn't think of. Well, thank you. Thank you.
society is rich, God knows, maybe we have cyberspace threats in, in the future, and building relationship via internet uh, on the inside of the conflict dynamics with external actors on the grassroots level, blogs, I go, God knows what, yes. I mean, I think during the Arab Spring, you saw, for example, online groups as anonymous who come from all over the world uh, sending out leaflets um, how to, uh, for example, um, treat wounds, how to um, block certain punches, how to um, like not get hurt when the police is uh, hitting you. Yeah. And they also sent, uh, like, they made it possible that, they, that in Tunisia the internet was not uh, shut down. Yeah. So actually there was a lot of, uh, they, they contributed a lot to the, the, the development of the conflict. Mm. I don't know to what degree that is uh, um, resolution yet, but mm. I mean, if, if the whole population has internet, that is, that is quite a good thing. Yeah, it's a big debate whether the Arab Spring was a uh, uh, social media revolution or not. I mean, that's but that's true that in some of the cases you had exactly what you described. Uh, information and, and uh, on the one hand on what actually what's going on in the conflict dynamics on the other hand and as you say different advices and so on so in one sense social media has not replaced but complemented classical old readings and newspapers and so on which then usually in authoritarian regime is controlled by the regime so social media was a way of coming around with more balanced news or from one side news, meaning from the grassroots level. So that's interesting in itself. It's a big deal. I'll come back a little bit to, to that. Because it looks different from one country in the Arab world to another on how much social media played a role or not. Yeah, so maybe we add cyber and internet communication as a tenth track. <coughs> well, I give you some empirical inputs. Some of you have been before, remember some of the cases. Uh, the first one is from a Swedish organization that worked in Somalia in around the 1990s, in the beginning. Uh, actually, they went on to work there until, I still think they have an office there and work in there until this day, but with a much lower profile than, than compared to how it was in the <coughs> Somalia, as you know, Recent news has shown how horrific and difficult the, the conflict dynamics are. The suicide bomb killed something like 200. Uh, it all began the breakdown of the dictatorship around 1990. And uh, of course, linked to that, there were different uh, problems inside, not least authoritarian structure in itself, when the leader takes a lot of wealth. We also had the um, different kind of drafts, uh, starvation problems and so on. It also created tension between the different parts in the country. Uh, so when the dictator had to go, actually in the very beginning of 1991, uh, it quite soon led to some sort of internal civil war. Although one could say that the Somalis are more or less one nation, it's still, as we know, that identification can shift and change you had different clans, and you had different warlords who controlled different areas in the country. It was a disastrous situation. But that was a time when the Cold War just had ended, USSR had just dissolved, and, and all of a sudden the 
great powers could cooperate in the United Nations, in the Security Council. So they had different ideas on how we should make peace all over the world. And that's how this whole agenda for peace also came in 1992. And also in the United Nations case, in the Somalia case, the United Nations intervened in a big peace building operation. And in that um, context, you had uh, a telephone call coming to the office of LPI, Life and Peace Institute in Uppsala, asking whether they would like to contribute to build peace. <laughs> and the idea was that they should have a division of labor where the United Nations would build the central government that had been collapsing as a result of, of um, the, the dictatorship's fall, while the civil society um, part, building peace from below, should go to the Life and Peace Institute. That's not a small mission. I mean, I thought it was a big mission to have top negotiations between Israelis and, and Gulf state, but this one, you know, really building peace from below, it's an immense work task. But they were brave enough and said, yes, we can contribute. And they really made a big effort to, to transform this. That was a time when uh, a lot of, um, I would say, second, third generations conflict resolutioner started to question this, whether peace cannot only come from the top, it must come from, from other sides of society too. That's also when John Paul Laverack started to develop his idea on how you should initiate and transform a conflict rather than solve an issue, which is quite important to remember. So when they were involved, <coughs> they, they tried to work according to what the concrete resolutions, the first, second, and beginning of the third generation, uh, recommended on how you should build the peace. And uh, they did what rarely is done in conflicts, a real comprehensive conflict analysis first. Don't do anything before you have done your conflict. Now, that's why we always have these kind of exercises in the beginning of these courses. You need to know something about conflict analysis. Then it can be designed and, and, and look a little bit different from one, one conflict dynamic to another on how you make this analysis. But at least you need to have some sort of clue on what are the issues, who are the core actors, what are the triggers in the conflict, what kind of attempts have been made, why did it fail, and so on, before you do anything at all. But you don't make it just yourself. Um, you also involve experts from the conflict. On the one hand, they had international experts, um, like Ladrak, he was involved, uh, but also local experts from Somalia who had fled the country and could give inputs. And from there on, they, they started to come up with some sort of blueprint for how they should eventually go ahead. But they also wanted to have an, um, a security or an insurance um, that it was really uh, the right kind of conflict analysis they had conducted in the conflict analysis. So it's not enough to have uh, something like 20, 40 different kind of experts looking at the company and giving their inputs. They also went to the lo local <coughs> level inside Somalia to check with the different clans and so on. What do you think about this? The local population, not the top leaders. 
First of all, Somalia didn't have a central government. It had collapsed, which again was a problem for, for the United Nations, because with whom should you have contact? So then it's easier if another organization takes this grassroots responsibility. Anyway, they came quite early on to some sort of conclusion that one of the problems with Somalia was that the warlords had too much power on the local level. So how can you try to isolate them? One way is, of course, make sure not to talk to them. <laughs> and the United Nations uh, promised in an agreement with Life and Peace that you build, we will build the central government and we will not talk with the warlords directly on how they should have a political role and negotiate and so on. Try to isolate them as much as possible while you build the peace from below. Um, in order to restore some sort of new political structure, uh, one of the suggestions from the conflict analysis was to build uh, on, on existing previous older systems like the elderly structures. So the idea was to give legitimacy to the elderly structure that had existed before, before the warlords had taken over, so to speak. Again, here came again something that has to do with the global culture and liberal peace. The Westerners, of course, wanted to also have when the elderly structure should be reinstalled, so to speak. Uh, it should be both men and women. In the old times, we had only men in, in the power position. So that was something that came in from the West, so to speak, into the peace building idea. But basically, life and peace should build the peace from below. And decided that on this kind of peace conference, um, where they asked the different yeah, clans or whatever you define them as coming from different parts of country, coming together. And they don't just sit and talk for one, two, three days. They had a conference for five months or something like this. So they were really elaborating the whole thing. And can you imagine that you, from now on until March, will sit together and talk about how your vision, future society would look like? You rarely have that type of, of peace conferences. But that's what they had here. So in many ways, they could really have checks and balance scrutiny of, of the peace proposal, the blueprint itself. And of course, some parts were redefined, redesigned, and from down then they started to build the peace gradually. Um, how do you build that peace? What, well, the idea. Well, I said already that the United Nations will work with establishing institutions on the central level. Meanwhile, they will find elderly structures on the local grassroots level as well as regional level in Somalia. So it's about reinstalling. You can see one woman. Still somewhere in the middle, right? majority are men. So that was one issue. So of course they had a different kind of um, trainings. And you had all the classical things that's also part of the liberal peace package. Trainings in, in conflict resolution, trainings in human rights, training in gender equality and so on. So in order to prepare for, for elderly structures to take over and include also the women. That was the whole idea. They knew that there was a patriarchal strong structure in Somalia. 
but they also made use of it. So basically by bringing the different clan women together, they could also ask them to go in between the fighting forces and to shoot at your own women is really a sin, so everyone stopped fighting some of the pockets and then they could start negotiating about local ceasefire in different areas in Somalia. And it spread out and eventually they could start to reinstall these elderly structures. And of course it's about building a new municipality and to restore it, give it some sort of legitimacy. I don't know how much IKEA furniture uh, made money on this, but a lot of IKEA furniture came to these municipalities in order to give it nice look and, and legitimacy. And almost in all the 16 districts of Somalia, they managed to reinstall these kind of elderly structures. It was nearly a total success, uh, which is a quite impressive thing. And uh, the women came gradually in, still far from that even today. It's rather a continuation of this patriarchal structure. But they played a key role in the beginning of this peace-building process. Could be part of not only the ceasefire thing, but also be part of political decision-making structures on the local level and regional level. So it really looked like it's going to be a total success, really an example of how you can build peace from the world. <coughs> Unfortunately, it didn't go the whole way. Or let's say it relapsed in, had a backlash into new fighting. And the reason was that one of the parts of the United Nations military forces or peace enforcement, peacekeeping forces, the United States mission, were still hunting down different kind of warlords. One of them, General Aidid, uh, made a lot of resistance <coughs> and as you know when they tried to hunt him down 93, you have seen the move Black Hawk down I guess, where something 20 <coughs> American US soldiers died and something like 300 Somalis were killed. But three of the American soldiers were dragged behind, dead, dragged behind the cars through Mogadishu, and that was sent out in media. And of course, Bill Clinton was nervous on the protests from, from inside the US, and withdraw the American military from Somalia. It was a different time then. It was before 9-11. Uh, After 9-11, it was more acceptable that American soldiers died in, in, in the fight against terrorists, as it was called. But here, at that time, it was different. It was really a domestic um, turbulence against the US mission in Somalia. And when they withdraw, the United Nations also looked bad in the international eyes. And in order to come forward on a quick fix, as they thought, they started to do what they promised life Life and Peace Institute that they would not do, meaning to talk with the warlords. So they gave back the legitimacy to the warlords, and then the process collapsed, unfortunately. But it is a very good example, and it's also a good example in the sense that when you look at the amount of resources that were spent on peace building from below, then you're almost astonished. I mean, it's a huge country, Somalia, geographically. 
and those who have heard this example before, they know how many people who came from life and peace from Sweden to work with peace building from below. How many were there? You remember? Two. Two, Two exactly. Two people. Of course they had to build peace together with the locals. It was not a mission with hundreds of people from Sweden coming there. But they built up a civil society organization in Somalia who took over the responsibility with some sort of advisory consultancy status with life and peace. And from there on they worked with it. Another very, very important insight <coughs> from this example is that um, they were so successful in the beginning and so visible in the Somali context. So when it went well and ceasefire came and they started to build up the local municipality structures and so on, uh, of course life and peace became the big heroes in Somalia. I mean there are many people of the <coughs> generation that still remember life and peace, they still have some sort of good reputation from that time. However, when things go bad, you will be, even if you're not the one who is responsible for it, you will be accused for being part of, of the bad side, that it escalated again. So one of the very important insights from the Somali example is that you cannot be so alone, you cannot be so visible when you act in, in a conflict context, as a civil society play. It's different when you're a top leader, then you're always visible. But here, you should have, have some sort of structure where you involve as many civil society associations and organizations as possible, and divide the burden between you, so that you collectively take the responsibility for what's going on. And, and I think that's, that's a very important insight. Unfortunately, it took some time before life and peace realized it itself because they continued in many other contexts in Congo, Eastern Congo, they had the same mission and, and it went very well in the beginning but they had the same kind of backlash and were very very hated by many militias in Eastern Congo and attacked by, because of that even if they were not the reason for the escalation of the conflict again or relapse into war violence but it shows that it's one of the best examples you can have on how far you can come with relatively few resources in staff way as well as money-wise by just involving the people. Uh, again, here they are very much linked to the international arena. The question is, and John Paul Ebert would definitely say, you should de-link the United Nations already from the very beginning and, and do it yourself because those players on the outside should contribute to help not to drive the process as the United Nations still could do by deciding to talk with the war of the There many other examples you could take from, the, from, from these types of interventions from civil societies. I think this is a good one. Any questions on life and peace? Yes. 